You're listening to the Safety Work Podcast, episode 53. And today we're asking the question, do parachutes prevent injuries and deaths? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Thanks again to all our listeners for continuing to follow along as we sail through the first year of the Safety Work podcast. We've got something a little bit interesting this week that Drew's prepared. So, Drew, how about we just go straight in? What's today's question? David, on the podcast, we try to sometimes explore fairly broad theories, but the problem with broad theories is they've got vague answers. So we'd like to mix it up a bit with some more specific interventions or practices where we can be definitive about the evidence. And given that the last few episodes have been on things like climate and leadership, I wanted to get back to something that was a bit more concrete. So we're going to talk about parachutes. I personally love parachutes. I've got a picture up on my wall of just like all these ancient designs of parachutes. And they're interesting for safety because you can see them as life-saving personal protective equipment. But most often they actually get used as life-risking recreational equipment. And it's really inconsistent who does and doesn't wear a parachute. So in military aircraft, they almost always have parachutes. Um, But there are very few civil aviation situations where they're required to have parachutes. So I thought it was a good one just to sort of look at that discrepancy and ask, you know, should parachutes be used as a safety device? Is there any evidence that parachutes work for preventing injury or death? And we're going to look at a few papers that try to answer that question. So, Drew, have you ever personally uh, used a parachute to save your own life? I have never personally used a parachute either to save or to risk my life. David, how about you? No, 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 absolutely not. I um, it's one of the things I I've never seen a parachute in the in the flesh, so to speak. I imagine from a risk management point of view that uh, eliminating the need for a parachute is probably going to be better than uh than using the parachute. But I'm looking forward to the the papers that you dug out today, Drew. So do you want to introduce the first paper that we'll talk about, people who maybe have seen parachutes more than we have? Okay, so the first paper is called Parachute Use to Prevent Death and Major Trauma Related to Gravitational Challenge, Systematic Review of Randomised Controlled Trials. It's published in the British Medical Journal, which is a very respectable journal, in 2003. Uh, The authors are Gordon Smith and Jill Pell. Professor Smith is a gynaecology and obstetrics researcher at Cambridge University. And Professor Pell is an expert in public health, looking at things like heart disease. So very, very qualified authors, but not necessarily the people you'd expect to be writing an informed study about parachutes. So the paper starts off with some initial observations, like most papers do, based on literature reviews. So they start off by pointing out that using parachutes is dangerous, parachutes sometimes fail, and sometimes they have adverse side effects, so not just by failing, but by actually causing death through the operation of the parachute. And they also point out that some people who jump out of aircraft without parachutes survive, and they give a few citations, and some people who jump out of aircraft with parachutes survive. But they say there's a lack of systematic research into whether and how much the parachute contributes to the survival. So that's what the paper sets out to study. So Drew, we've done a few systematic reviews such as this, and I'm not sure if any of our listeners have worked out what's going on here, but they developed some criteria and they looked for any studies that included a fall of 100 metres or more, 
and a parachute as the intervention. And then they tried to look at death or serious injury as an outcome uh, within those studies. And they excluded any study that didn't include a control group. Andrew, the result of this uh, literature search is they found zero studies of suitable quality measuring the effectiveness of parachutes. So very uncommon to see a literature review that defines a criteria and then says, well, we actually haven't found any papers. And, and the authors are quite blunt about this. They say that yeah, this is pretty extraordinary that we've got these claims about parachutes and a lack of evidence. But you're probably guessing that there's something a little bit more going on here, particularly given the journal and the authors and the topic. So what is the crossover between gynecology, heart disease, and randomized controlled trials of parachutes? Because it turns out there is a very specific intersection point of those three things, which is hormone replacement therapy. So Smith and Pell, they're making an argument against the idea of evidence-based medicine. One of the central ideas behind evidence-based medicine as a movement is the fact that the history of medicine is filled with these interventions that seem obviously effective, that there's observational evidence that they seem to work, but when those interventions are properly tested, such as with randomised controlled trials, they turn out not to be nearly as effective as people thought they were, and some of them are just totally ineffective. And so this seems to make sense, but it really annoys a lot of people, particularly if you're the one who's been promoting the thing which the randomised controlled trial has uh, disproved. Um, so you've really got three choices. You can change your beliefs about the intervention, which is what evidence-based medicine says you should do. Here's a new trial, update your way of thinking. Or you can try to understand what's going on, how come your past observations and the trials disagree, is it more complicated than either realise? Or you can attack the idea that randomised controlled trials are the best form of evidence. And that's what this paper about parachutes is trying to do. Um, and it's actually very highly cited in the medical literature in, this, in arguments about when should we and shouldn't we rely on evidence. So the reason why we've got a cardiac and a, a gynecology person is that hormone replacement therapy was one of those interventions that initially seemed to be a good idea. But then once they started conducting large-scale high-quality trials, a lot of the evidence against, uh, in favour of it sort of evaporated, despite the fact that lots and lots of people believed that it was obviously a good thing to do. Now, first thing we need to say here is don't take medical advice from a podcast. <laughs> Particularly don't take medical advice from this one. I'm not a doctor, David. Well, actually, Drew, you are a doctor, but not a, not a medical doctor. <laughs> uh, no, not one qualified to give any sort of medical advice. And um, we also should point out that there's been 15 years of research since this argument started. And in that time, the evidence for and against hormone replacement therapy has just become more and more complicated and to the point where I couldn't even work out like what is the current consensus and I don't want to even try to say what it is. Just that it started off being something that seemed obviously a good idea and then the evidence just made the situation really complicated. And I think, Drew, the important thing for us here and, and what we do each week on the Safety Work podcast is that Smith and Pell were trying to use parachutes to show that some interventions are so obvious that randomized controlled trials are, well, in their words, maybe a waste of time, but at least we shouldn't discount uh, what we observe in the real world because we, we are unable to replicate it in a laboratory setting. So Drew, their discussion section has a subtitle, uh, Evidence-Based Pride and Observational Prejudice. And the conclusion for the, from the paper is, is worth quoting in full. Do you mind if I read, read the quote from the paper? Please do, David. So this is the quote from the discussion section. Only two options exist. 
The first is that we accept that under exceptional circumstances, common sense might be applied when considering the potential risks and benefits of interventions. The second is that we continue our quest for the holy grail of exclusively evidence-based interventions and preclude parachute use outside the context of a properly conducted trial. The dependency we have created in our population may make recruitment of the unenlightened masses of to such a trial difficult. So if we feel assured that those who advocate evidence-based medicine and criticize the use of interventions that lack an evidence base will not hesitate to demonstrate their commitment by volunteering for a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover trial. So basically they're saying that sometimes we should just use common sense instead of demanding strong evidence, and anyone who believes otherwise should jump out of an airplane without a parachute. So David, this parachute paper and the metaphor that goes with it gets used a lot in debates about evidence-based medicine. And the debates really come down to some people think that where there's a strong argument that when an intervention makes logical sense and there's observational evidence that suggests that it appears to work, it would be unethical to delay offering that intervention while waiting for better evidence. And then other people say that's the exact problem that evidence-based medicine is trying to fix. There are too many things that make strong logical sense and seem to work. And then later on, we find out that not only don't they work, they cause serious harm instead. And so we've got these sort of two sides of the argument. One people saying, you know, trust what's obvious. And the other saying, no, 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 what is obvious often is actually misleading us. I think just before we move on to the to the next paper, I, I really like the matter of factness about this paper because they, they sort of conclude that, and maybe our listeners can think about, you know, would you want a parachute or, or, or not a parachute if you're, if you're jumping out of a plane? Because there are no randomized controlled trials which say that the parachute is going to be um, a better outcome for you than not wearing one and point out that people have survived without a parachute anywhere up to 10,000 meter or 30,000 feet falls and that people, like you said, Drew, die with parachutes on. So on the balance of this risk and benefits, the basis for using parachutes is purely observational. And that they further say when they continue the um, the example that anyone who decides that they're not going to wear a parachute and um, and you know volunteer to fall out of a plane or jump out of a plane has probably got some pre-existing psychiatric you know morbidity associated with you know their own personal condition, and the people who use parachutes are probably are different in some really important demographic factors such as income and even cigarette use. So they're making this statement that said, you know, individuals who insist that all interventions need to be validated by a randomized controlled trial, you know, need to come down to earth with a bump. So, you know, I like the way they carried that that example all the way through to make their points. Yeah, and they, they do make, I think, the most persuasive case for that point of view. But making that case, they hide a few key considerations. One of the big ones is that it's not really a choice between at the point you have to jump out of a plane, whether to wear a parachute or not. It's things like, do we make laws that all planes should carry parachutes just in case, given the massive expense that that would entail to create and maintain the parachutes, to ensure they're always in perfect condition, to train people to use them, compared to other interventions we could give people that might be more effective, such as having more reliable planes in the first place. So should we move on to our second paper? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that, because it's also a BMJ paper as well. Yeah, and so this is a later paper published in 2018. And given that the previous one said that there are no randomised controlled trials of parachutes, you might be pleased to hear that this one is Parachute Use to Prevent Death and Major Trauma When Jumping from Aircraft, Randomised Controlled Trial. Uh, This one has a long list of authors. If you look at the affiliation, some of these authors are skydiving instructors. So we do have a little bit more credibility here. 
And this is, in fact, a study that did directly involve skydiving. But the lead author is Robert Yeh, who is, again, a heart disease expert at Harvard, which might be a little bit of a clue to you as to where this paper is going as well. So in the study, they approached people who were travelling on aircraft and asked them whether they would be willing to participate in a study which involved jumping out of the aircraft either with a backpack or with a parachute. And then once that people had agreed to participate in the study, they then randomised which one they were given. They started off doing this actually on commercial flights by approaching people who were sitting near them and asking them to participate in the experiment. They didn't get enough people for a statistical sample for that, so they also started asking their friends to participate in the study and extended it beyond commercial aircraft. Now, when you're doing this sort of experiment, you need to calculate the, what is an appropriate sample size. And if you've got a really large effect, you only need a small sample. So they expected that based on a typical parachute jump from around 4,000 feet, or, you know, a bit over a kilometre in the air, 99% of people without a parachute would die, and less than 5% of people with a parachute should die. So when you've got that sort of extreme expectation, you only need a very small sample. But still, they struggled to find participants and had to start sort of scraping and varying the procedure to get enough people to agree. In total, they asked 92 people to take part. Only 23 agreed to participate. So they pushed or got 12 people to jump out of a plane with a parachute and 11 people to jump out of a plane with just a backpack. And the study concluded that there was no significant difference between the survival rates for people wearing the parachutes and people in the control group. So Drew, if our listeners are playing on playing along at home, that I mean, randomised control trial, two groups, one with a parachute, one with a backpack, both jumping out of planes, and no significant difference between the, uh, let's say, the fatality rates of the various people. So what's going on here? What's buried in the detail of the study? So even though they say that they recruited people across this pool that included people travelling mid-flight on commercial airliners, the average participant in this study, the average person who agreed to participate, was travelling in an aircraft jumping from a height of 60 centimetres from an aircraft travelling at zero kilometres per hour. Now, those figures are kind of cleverly hidden with statistical graphs and pluses and minuses and error bars. But basically, everyone was jumping off a stationary biplane right at the ground. I mean, they buried the statistics, but there was also a fun photo in the article of one of the participants uh, jumping off, a, off, off the wing of a biplane with a backpack on. Yes. So when I say buried, I'm exaggerating a little bit. So Drew, it's another study, you know, making some fun of this idea of the necessity for evidence-based medicine. And I suppose in this case, the authors are very much in favour of evidence-based medicine, but they're sort of pointing out the dangers of just reading the headline conclusions of the study. And so I suppose the key message is before using the results of the research, it's really important to look at how the research was conducted and whether it matches the real world situation it's meant to shed light on. I think we do that hopefully all weeks on the Safety Work podcast is um, you particularly, Drew, take some time to look at how the research was designed and what we can infer and, and what we should ignore in terms of our, our real practice inside organisations. So sometimes people finish off a paper by saying oh, more research is needed. And sometimes that's just a token thing. And sometimes it is a genuine admission of just how weakly a study applies to the real world. So this happens a lot in both medicine and in safety. In medicine, we see a lot that there are these very weak studies or studies that are undertaken in very narrow circumstances that are more analogies to the real world thing that they're trying to test. 
the example everyone will be familiar with is everything causes cancer in rats when you give them a large enough dose of it. Doesn't necessarily tell us what is and isn't dangerous for humans to eat. And I think, Drew, we've seen we've seen this these narrow studies in psychology for a hundred years. And I suppose as we look in more complex settings now where, you know, psychology is struggling from its replication crisis and you know, I just I just think it's really hard to design an experiment and understand what's going to happen once you get out of the narrow confines of that experiment into your into your complex real world setting. In in some cases, medicine may be one with biological systems and, and safety is definitely one with, with social systems. And, and David, I think we as a research community are a little bit guilty of that. We sometimes talk about how, oh, we could have better evidence, but this is the best evidence we have, as if having that best evidence is suggestive. And so that's why they've written this paper, and that's why they're using the parachute example again. Because it's obvious that the truth is exactly opposite to this preliminary finding. That once you take this finding at 60 centimetres and you extend it to up in the air, the results are going to reverse. So it's not just that more research is needed, it's that more research is almost guaranteed to reverse the result of this bad study. And I think, Drew, the paper we're going to talk about now does do just that, reverses the result with a with still a randomised controlled trial design, but a different way of kind of randomising the, the design of the study. And, and that might provide maybe the most useful, uh, <laughs> even though, I mean, the first two papers are somewhat parody papers, but but this third paper is, I think, important for this, this question about parachute use and and safety. So do you want to introduce the final article for the episode? Sure, but let's not pretend that this isn't also deliberately written as a fun parody article. But it does provide, it's not written to be misleading as to the results that it provides. So I actually forgot to write down the journal for this one. It's a fairly obscure spinal injury journal, but it's like a respectable medical journal making a point again about evidence-based medicine. The study is called, Does Usage of a Parachute in Contrast to Free Fall Prevent Major Trauma? A prospective randomised controlled trial in ragdolls. The lead author is Patrick Zorlich, and all the authors are surgeons or coroners in Hamburg. David, do you want to talk through the method, or shall I? Yeah, so let's do that. I just I just looked it up. You were right, Drew. It's the European Spine Journal, so it is quite an obscure um, or a niche, more niche medical journal. So, look, what the authors did here is they acquired a ragdoll. So, just think, I mean, a a, a dummy human used one that's used to provide basic medical education for young children and it represent it's got represented in it the brain the internal organs and the spine with the whole series of air balloons and water balloons and lego brick structures so you can teach young kids about anatomy i I guess and so what they did is they threw this doll off a building 50 times and 25 times put a parachute on the doll and 25 times didn't have a parachute and they measured the injuries um, that this rag doll experienced as a, as a result of these these falls. Uh, when we say measure the injuries, David, they actually put it through things like whole body scanners and took cross sections of it and all sorts of things that they'd normally do if they were, because that's why they had a coroner on the team to like, you know, deliberately treat this like an accident investigation. And so very, um, very detailed injury classifications. So probably very reliable assessment of the severe injury. So look, the control group received a ver- very wide variety of very serious injuries. And the parachute group received a much smaller number of injuries, and the injuries were generally less severe. So, Drew, the the obvious point that these researchers are trying to make with this paper. So they're trying to say that even though you can't ask humans to jump out of an aircraft without a parachute, 
And even though, you know, it's obvious that if you change the circumstances so the aircraft are on the ground, you're not going to get valid results. That still doesn't mean that you can't do a randomized controlled trial of the effectiveness of parachutes. And it's not just this paper. There is, in fact, a wide body of literature that studies parachute designs and has all sorts of methods for studying how parachutes work and what's the best design of parachute for different circumstances and what makes them effective or not. And even what are the trends of injuries of people using parachutes in particular ways under particular circumstances. So there's a sort of really important point here is that we can start off by criticising the fact that there are some things that are obvious and it doesn't make sense to do trials of them, apparently. And there are some types of trials which it doesn't make sense to do because they don't generalise into the real world situations. But with enough ingenuity and the right equipment and a well-stuffed ragdoll, it is possible to design experiments to test almost anything, so long as you've got the willingness and the resource to do it. And so, Drew, I think on uh, hopefully, hopefully this episode isn't isn't confusing our well confusing our listeners from my perspective. I think we're very strong, or at least I'm a very strong advocate of of research and evidence for safety, and I suspect that you are as well, Drew. Um, but I think what we're saying is that not all that the real world doesn't necessarily listen to what we design and what we find in the lab. And we need to have a whole range of different ways of trying to observe and trying to study um, the real world. And as, as I was reading through your notes for this episode, Drew, I think it's a good point for more recent listeners to, if they're looking through the back catalogue in episode 20, we talked about our manifesto for reality-based safety science, which actually talks about how we should think about describing the real world and how we should think about designing you know, reality-based research within organisations. And that might be a good stepping off point if people are looking for something to go back and listen to. Yeah, David, I think that's something that both you and I at various stages in our career have thought fairly seriously about, is that we've wanted to do large-scale experiments to test out our ideas. And we've had that sort of mindset that only a true experiment with like randomization and control groups would really give a thorough test of things. But very often when it's come to the practicality of how do we investigate this within an organisation, we've decided that an experiment is not the best use of our time and resources. Well, one of the limitations is that experiments really only answer a very, very well-focused question. And if you haven't done the ground research to work out what would make that perfect question, then you may be wasting your time with an experiment. It comes back with a negative answer, but that negative answer doesn't tell you anything or prove anything. Yeah, Drew, I remember when I first put my PhD research proposal in, my my hope was to do a kind of randomised control trial with um, safety professionals and with some of them performing the safety professional role from a sort of more traditional safety one perspective and then a cohort of safety professionals performing their role from a safety two perspective and designing those different types of roles and randomly assigning professionals into those roles and then observing what what happened in their sites and as a result... But then we started getting all sorts of complexities around, well, how does it change if the person is, you know, not of the belief of what they're performing is the right thing for them to be performing? And and how can we really mess around with people's jobs? And randomized controlled trials, in I suppose, in my experience then, was it becomes very hard if we're looking at anything beyond something that's quite transactional, quite simply cause and effect. It and and maybe in safety there's there's limited applications for the things that we're interested in in doing kind of these traditional randomized control trials where you put people into different categories. So David, I've learned a really important lesson from your PhD work because I've always wanted to do that big trial that you originally proposed. 
I've wanted to take different organizations and do something fundamentally different between those organizations and compare them. And so I was so excited when that's what you wanted to do as your project. But when I look back now, the ethnographic research that you did tells us that that experiment would have failed. You found out through your ethnography that the safety practitioners have much less discretion than we assumed that they'd have when we proposed that experiment. And so we almost certainly know now that the result would have been either a lack of difference or just a confusing mess of differences that showed no clear pattern. And it's only the ethnographic research that we did that could explain why we would have got that useless result. Um, so I'm glad now we didn't do the experiment and it sort of dampened some of my desire for the big grand experiment in safety. Look, I think I think there might be an opportunity for for some bigger randomized controlled experiments, but I think it's not necessarily with people as the randomized group. I think what's been done with other studies through the lab in terms of randomizing sites for different types of um like with the clutter experiments and things like that, I think some of those are where you're not sort of um trying to change the way people think about the world and 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 have to perform their role. I just think that's hard in real organizational settings to just even figure out how you separate out the person from the activity from the measurement. Mm. Which is why I think that we probably do need more experiments on things that have very direct causal mechanisms. So where there is a specific activity that's intended to achieve a specific result, definitely that's the sort of thing that we should devise experiments and test. Where it's something much more nebulous, like the role of the safety practitioner or the grand theory of safety that you subscribe to, probably we're not going to be able to design experiments that can directly test so I really don't think there's ever going to be a, this is the experiment that proves that safety differently works, or this is the experiment that proves that safety differently doesn't work, or this is why, whether you should have safety one or safety two. Those are just not the types of questions which are resolvable through neat experimental work. No, not any that I can think of. Um, not any not any designs that I can think of anyway. Um, so Drew, some practical takeaways now. So you know, we, we spoke about, so it's an interesting question that we asked today that we'll reflect on shortly. And we've, you know, you've, you've gone and dug out three papers and the purpose of all of these three papers. And I suppose our purpose in talking about them was to just challenge ourselves and challenge our listeners and others to think about, to think in more sophisticated ways about evidence-based practice. But what should, what should our listeners sort of take away from this discussion? So I think the number one takeaway we'll put in is that the basic principle of evidence-based medicine applies to safety practice too. And that principle isn't about randomized controlled trials. It just says that wherever possible, we should use the best available evidence and we should apply that evidence to the situation in front of us based on the local conditions. And so Drew, even, and secondly, even when there appears to be evidence, don't just take people's word for it. Lots of people claim to have good evidence for certain safety practices until you look closely at exactly what the evidence is and isn't. And I think we've talked on this podcast about various times in relation to safety culture and behavioral safety and safety differently. And all of the all of the people involved in, in all of those approaches claim to have really strong evidence. And I think um, what we've shown on the podcast is um, that's, you know, for, for all of those areas, you know, rarely, rarely the case. Um, the third one is that we shouldn't be totally dogmatic about what counts as suitable evidence. Randomised controlled trials are pretty good, and they're usually the best form of evidence for testing a specific intervention with a specific outcome in mind. But there are lots of situations where doing that sort of trial just isn't practical or isn't appropriate. 
So, uh, and the best example of that is that we if we only accepted randomized controlled trial evidence, we'd never try improving safety at an organizational level. We'd always be doing small tactical things that we could do trials for. Like whether people should wear hard hats or not wear hard hats and and other sort of smaller interventions. And I think we just demonstrated that with our discussion about the role of safety professionals as well, um, Drew. And I think as the Ragdoll study shows, um, there are more things that are amenable to randomized controlled trials than we might initially assume. So having a bit of uh, ingenuity with how we think about setting up our research design, you might not be able to randomize people or you might not be able to get people to participate in in everything that you'd like, but how can you think about trying to test your hypotheses and, and your research questions in some more obscure but potentially relevant kind of ways? So David, I'm going to keep throwing one last observation, which is just keep that metaphor of a parachute in the back of your mind and the three different things that parachutes represent, that they represent that sometimes doing a trial is not appropriate and applicable. Sometimes they represent the trial that we're doing isn't providing evidence that maps onto the real world situation that we care about. And sometimes they represent that ingenuity, that there are clever ways that we can test things that might seem hard to test. Yeah, Drew, I think they're great. And I also wrote a little note here to myself to say to, for a few principles to remind people of, and, and it sort of goes into other things that we've said most weeks on the podcast, is that with whatever you're doing in your organization, always be clear about what the direct mechanism is that you're trying to influence. So, so get clear on that. Um, and don't just say improve safety or reduce injuries, but get clear on that mechanism. Ask yourself the question, do I have a baseline? Um, because you ne- if you don't have a baseline before you start doing something, you're never going to kind of know what's what's happened as a result. And where you can try to find some kind of comparison group or control in some way to t- kind of test. So, you know, I think I, I think there's still some research principles. Well, there are definitely some research principles that should apply to any kind of organizational intervention that we undertake. But we shouldn't think about them as having to be a randomized controlled trial um, or nothing. Th- thanks, David. I agree with all of that. So message for our listeners, uh, things that we would like to know from you is let's have a bit of a discussion about what are the parachutes represent in safety? What are those things that we think are so obvious that it's not even worth trying to test whether or not they work? I'm looking forward to that discussion, Drew. I'm looking forward to seeing what our listeners think and be brave and, and tell us and tell the community what uh, what are the things that you don't feel the need to have evidence for because you've observed throughout your entire career as things that you know have an impact on on improving the safety of work. So, Drew, our question for this week was, do parachutes prevent injuries and deaths? And the answer? Well, I think the answer is no, no, yes. No, if you're only going to accept randomized controlled trials of humans. No, if you're conducting your study from a parked biplane. And yes, if you're interested in protecting the life of a poor little ragdoll that's been cut open, filled with water balloons and Lego, and thrown out of a building. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us on LinkedIn and um, engage in the conversation or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. Thanks for listening.